Section 3 of Satires and Profanities This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Satires and Profanities by James Thompson The Story of a Famous Old Jewish Firm Many thousands of years ago, when the Jews first started in business, the chief of their merchants was a venerable and irascible old gentleman named Yah. The Jews have always been excellent traders, keen to scent wealth, subtle to track it, unweary to pursue it, strong to seize it, tenacious to hold it, and the most keen, subtle, untiring, strong, tenacious of them all was this Yah. The patriarchs of his people paid him full measure of the homage which Jews have always eagerly paid to wealth and power, and all their most important transactions were carried out through him. In those antique times people lived to a very great age, and Yah is supposed to have lived so many thousands of years that one may as well not try to count them. Perhaps it was not one Yah that existed all this while, but the house of Yah, the family, both for pride and profit, preserving through successive generations the name of its founder. Certain books have been treasured by the Jews as containing exact records of the dealings of this lordly merchant or house, both with the Jews themselves and with strangers. Many people in our times, however, have ventured to doubt the accuracy of these records, arguing that some of the transactions therein recorded would have been impossible to transact, that others must have totally ruined the riches of merchants, that the accounts often contradict each other, and that the system of bookkeeping generally is quite unworthy of a dealer so truthful and clear-headed as Yah is affirmed to have been. The records are so ancient in themselves, and they treat of matters so much more ancient still, that it is not easy to find other records of any sort with which to check their accounts. Strangely enough, the most recent researchers have impugned the accuracy of the most ancient of these records. Certain leaves of a volume called The Great Stone Book have been brought forward to contradict the very first folio of the ledger in which the dealings of Yah have been posted up according to the Jews. It may be that the first few folios, like the early pages of most annals, are somewhat mythical, and the present humble compiler, who is not deep in the affairs of the primeval world, and who, like the late lamented Captain Cuttle, with his large volume, is utterly knocked up at any time by four or five lines of the great stone book, will prudently not begin at the beginning but skip it with great comfort and pleasure, especially as many and learned men are now earnest students of this beginning. We will, therefore, if you please, take for granted that the facts at some time, in some manner, Yah created his wonderful business, and that early in his career he met with a great misfortune, being compelled, by the villainy of those with whom he had dealings, to resort to a wholesale liquidation, which left him so poor that for some time he had not a house in the world, 
and his establishment was reduced to four male and as many female servants. He must have pretty well recovered from this severe shock when he entered into the famous covenant or contract with Abraham and his heirs, in which he bound himself to deliver over to them at a certain, then distant period, the whole of the valuable landed property called Canaan, on condition that they should appoint him the sole agent for the management of their affairs. In pursuance of this contract, he conducted that little business of the flocks and herds for Jacob against one Laban, and afterwards, when the children of Abraham were grown very numerous, he managed for them that other little affair by which they spoiled the Egyptians of jewels of silver and jewels of gold, and it is even asserted that he fed and clothed the family for no less than forty years in a country where the commissariat was a service of extreme difficulty. At length the time came when he was to make over to them the land of Canaan, for this purpose evicting the several families then in possession thereof. The whole of the covenant estate he never did make over to them, but the Jews freely admit that this was through their own fault. They held this land as mortgaged to him, he pledging himself not to foreclose while they dealt with him faithfully and fulfilled all the conditions of the covenant. They were to pay him ten percent per annum interest, with sundry other charges, to put all their affairs into his hands, to have no dealings whatsoever with any rival merchants, etc., etc. Under this covenant, the Jews continued in possession of the fine little property of Canaan for several hundred years, and they asserted that the same Yah lived and conducted his business throughout the whole period. But, as I have ventured to suggest, the long existence of the house of Yah may have been the sum total of the lives of a series of individual Yahs. The Jews could not have distinguished the one from the other, for it is a strange fact that Yah himself, they admit, was never seen. Perhaps he did not affect close contact with the Jews. Perhaps he calculated that his power over them would be increased by mystery. This is certain, that he kept himself wholly apart from them in his private office, so that no one was admitted, even on business. It is indeed related that one Moses, the witness to the execution of the covenant, caught a glimpse of him from behind, but this glimpse could scarcely have sufficed for identification, and it is said also that at certain periods the chief of the priesthood was admitted to consultation with him, but although his voice was then heard, he did not appear in person. Only the shadow of him was seen, and everyone will allow that a shadow is not the best means of identification. And in further support of my humble suggestion, it may be noted that in many and important respects the later proceedings attributed to Yah differ extremely in character from the earlier, and this difference cannot be explained as the common difference between the youth and maturity and senility of one and the same man. For we are expressly assured that Yah was without change, by which we are not to understand that either through thoughtlessness or parsimony 
He never had small cash in his pocket for minor occasions of life, but that he was stubborn in his will, unalterable in his ideas, persistent in his projects and plans. The records of his dealings at home with the Jews and abroad with the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Philistines, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Edomites, and other nations, as kept by the Jews themselves, are among the strangest accounts of a large general business which have ever been put down in black on white. And in nothing are they more strange than in the unsullied candor with which the Jews always admit and proclaim that it was their fault, and by no means the fault of Yah. Whenever the joint business went badly, and narrate against themselves the most astonishing series of frauds and falsehoods, showing how they broke the covenant and attempted to cheat the other party in every imaginable way, and in order to ruin his credit, conspired with foreign adventurers of the worst character, such as M. M., Baal, Ashtroth, and Moloch, Jao, who gave many proofs of a violent and jealous temper, and who was wont to sell up other debtors in the most heartless way, appears to have been very patient and lenient with these flatagitous Jews. Yet with all his kindness and long-suffering, he was again and again forced to put executions into their house, and throw themselves in prison, and at length, before our year one, having, as it would seem, given up all hope of making them deal honestly with him, he had put certain strict Romans in possession of the property to enforce his mortgage and other rights. And now comes a sudden and wonderful change in the history of this mysterious Yah. Whether it was the original Yah who felt himself too old to conduct the immense business alone, or whether it was some successor of his who had not the same self-reliance and imperious will, one cannot venture to decide. But we all know that it was publicly announced, and soon came to be extensively believed, that Yah had taken unto himself two partners, and that the business was thenceforth to be carried on by a firm under the style of father, son, and company. It is commonly thought that history has a more certainty as it becomes more recent, but unfortunately, in the life of Yah, uncertainty grows ten times more uncertain when we attain the period of this alleged partnership. For the Jews deny it altogether, and of those who believe in it, not one is able to define its character, or even to state its possibility in intelligent language. The Jews assert roundly that the alleged partners are a couple of vile impostors, that Jah still conducts his worldwide business alone, that he has good reasons, known only to himself, for delaying the exposure of these pretenders, and that however sternly he has been dealing with the Jews for a long time past, and however little they may seem to have improved, so as to deserve better treatment, he will yet be reconciled with them, and restore them to possession of their old land, and exalt them above all their rivals and enemies, and of his own free will and absolute pleasure burn and destroy every bond of their indebtedness now in his hands, and in support of these modest expectations they can produce a bundle of documents 
which they assert to be his promissory notes, undoubtedly for very large amounts, but which, being carefully examined, turn out to be all framed on this model. I, the above-mentioned A.B., an obscure or utterly unknown Jew, supposed to have lived about three thousand years ago, hereby promise, in the name of Yah, that the said Yah shall in some future year unknown pay unto the house of Israel the following amount, that is to say, etc. If we ask, where is the power of attorney authorizing this dubious A.B. to promise this amount in the name of Yah, the Jews retort, if you believe in the partnership, you must believe in such power, for you have accepted all the obligations of the old house and have never refused to discount its paper. If you believe neither in Yah nor in the partnership, you are a wretch utterly without faith, a commercial outlaw. In addition, however, to these remarkable promissory notes, the Jews rely upon the fact that Yah, in the midst of his terrible anger, has still preserved some kindness for them. He threatened many pains and penalties upon them for breach of the covenant, and many of these threats he has carried out, but the most cruel and horrific of all he has not had the heart to fulfill. They have been oppressed and crushed. Strangers have come into their landed property. They have been scattered among all people, a proverb and a byword of scorn among the nations. Their religion has been accursed. Their holy places are defiled. But the crowning woe has been spared them. Deuteronomy 28.44 Never yet has it come to pass that the stranger should lend to them, and they should not lend to the stranger. There is yet balm in Gilead, a rose of beauty in Sharon, and a cedar of majesty on Lebanon. The Jew still lends to the stranger, and does not borrow from him, except as he borrowed from the Egyptians. And the interest on money lent is still capable, with judicious treatment, of surpassing the noble standard of shent per shent. And even among the Gentiles there are some who believe that Yah is still the sole head of the house, and the pair, who are commonly accounted junior partners, are in fact only superior servants, the one a sort of manager, the other general superintendent and agent, though Yah may allow them a liberal commission on the profits as well as a fixed salary. But the commercial world of Europe in general professes to believe that there is a bona fide partnership, and that these three partners have exactly equal authority and interest in the concern, that, in fact, there is such thorough identity in every respect that the three may and ought to be, for all purposes of business, considered as one. The second partner, they say, is really the son of Yah, though Yah, with that eccentricity which has ever abundantly characterized his proceedings, had his son brought up as a poor Jewish youth, apparently the child of a carpenter called Joseph and his wife Mary. Joseph has little or no influence with the firm, and we scarcely hear of a transaction done through him. But Mary has made the most profitable use of her old liaison with Yah, and the majority of those who do business with the firm seek her good offices 
and pay her very liberal commissions. Those who do not think highly of her influence deal with the house chiefly through the son, and thus it has come to pass that poor Yah is virtually ousted from his own business. He and the third partner are a little more than sleeping partners, while his mistress and her son manage every affair of importance. This state of things seems somewhat unfair to Yah, yet one must own that there are good reasons for it. Yah was a most haughty and humorous gentleman, extremely difficult to deal with, liable to sudden fits of rage, wherein he maltreated friends and foes alike, implacable when once offended, a desperately sharp shaver in the bargain, a terrible fellow for going to law. The son was a much more kindly personage, very affable and pleasant in conversation, willing and eager to do a favor to anyone, liberal in promises even beyond his powers of performance, fond of strangers and good to the poor, and his mother, with or without reason, is credited with a similar character. Moreover, Yah always kept himself invisible while the son and the mother were possibly seen during some years by a large number of persons, and among those who have never seen them, their portraits are almost as popular as photographs of the Prince and Princes of Wales. With the real or pretended establishment of the firm, a great change took place in the business of Yah. The business had been chiefly with the Jews, and even when it extended to foreign transactions, these were all subordinate to the Jewish trade. But the firm lost no time in proclaiming that it would deal with the whole world on equal terms. No wonder the Jews abhor the alleged partners. And the nature of the contracts, the principal articles of trade, the mode of keeping the accounts, the commission and interest charged and allowed, the salaries of the agents and clerks, the advantages offered to clients, were all changed too. The head establishment was removed from Jerusalem to Rome, and branch establishments were gradually opened in nearly all the towns and villages of Europe, besides many in Asia and Africa, and afterwards in America and Australia. It is worth noting that in Asia and Africa, although the firms arose in the former, the business has never been carried on very successfully. Messrs. Brahma, Vishnu, Siva and Company, the great houses of Buddha and Mumbo-Jumbo, various Parsee firms and other opposition houses, having among them almost monopolized the trade. The novel, distinctive, and most useful article which the firm engaged to supply was a bread called par excellence, the bread of life. The prospectus, which was first drafted apparently in perfect good faith by the sun, but which has since been so altered and expanded by successive agents that we cannot learn what the original, no longer extent, exactly stated, set forth that the house of Yah, Son and Company, had sole possession of the districts yielding the corn whereof this bread is made, the sole patents of the mills for grinding and ovens for baking, and that it alone has the secret of the proper process for kneading. The firm admits that many other houses have pretended 
to supply this invaluable bread, but accuses them all of imposture or poisonous adulteration. For itself, it commands the genuine supply in such quantities that it can undertake to feed the whole world, and at so cheap a rate that the poorest will be able to purchase as much as he needs, and moreover, as the firm differs essentially from all other firms in having no object in view, save the benefit of its customers, the partners being already so rich that no profits could add to their wealth, it will supply the bread for mere love to those who have not money. This fair and beautiful prospectus, you will easily believe, brought vast multitudes eager to deal with the firm, and especially large multitudes of the poor ravished with the announcement that love should be henceforth current coin of the realm, and the business spread amazingly. But at the very outset, a sad mischance occurred. The son, by far the best of the partners, was suddenly seized and murdered and buried by certain agents of the old Jewish business, furious at the prospect of losing all their rich trade, with the connivance of the Roman installed as inspector. At least these wretches thought they had murdered the poor man, and it is admitted on every side that they buried him, but the dependents of the firm have a strange story that he was not really killed, but arose out of his tomb after lying there for three days, and slipped away to keep company with his father, the invisible Yah, in his exceedingly private office, and they assert that he is still alive along with Yah, mollifying the old man when he gets into one of his furious passions, pleading for insolvent debtors, and in all things by acts and counsel, doing good for all the clients of the house. They, moreover, assert that the third partner, who, as the consoling substitute for the absent son, is commonly called the comforter, who is very energetic, though mysteriously invisible in his operations, superintends all the details of the business in every one of the establishments. But this third partner is so difficult to catch that, as stated before, the majority of the customers deal with the venerable mother as the most accessible and humane personage belonging to the house. Despite the death or disappearance of the son, the firm prospered for a considerable time. After severe competition, in which neither side showed itself very scrupulous, the great firm of Jupiter and Company, the old Greek house, which had been strengthened by the amalgamation of the wealthiest Roman firms, was utterly beaten from the field, sold up, and extinguished. In the sale of the effects, many of the properties in most demand were bought in by the new firm, which also took many of the clerks and agents into its employment, and, it is even said, adopted, in several important respects, the mode of carrying on business and the system of bookkeeping. But while the firm was thus conquering its most formidable competitor, innumerable dissensions were arising between its own branch establishments, every one accusing every other of dealing on principles quite hostile to the regulations instituted by the head of the house, of falsifying the accounts, and of selling an article which was anything but the genuine, unadulterated bread. There were also interminable quarrels among them, 
as to relative rank and importance. And whether the wheat as delivered to the various establishments was or was not the genuine article which the firm had contracted to supply, it was soon discovered that it issued from the licensed shops adulterated in the most audacious manner. And although the prospectus has stated most positively that the bread should be delivered to the poor customers of the firm without money and without price, and such seems really to have been the good son's intention, it was found, in fact, that the loaves, when they reached the consumer, were at least as costly as ever loaves of any kind of bread had been. It mattered little that the wheat was not reckoned in the price when agents, commissioners, messengers' fees, bakers' charges, and a hundred items made the price total so enormous. When at length the business was flourishing all over Europe, it was the most bewildering confusion of contradictions that, perhaps, was ever known in the commercial world. For in all these establishments the agents professed and very solemnly swore that they dealt on principles opposed and infinitely superior to the old principle of trade, yet their proceedings, save that they christened old things with new names, were identical with those which had brought to the shameful ruin most of the villainous old firms. The sub-managers who were specially ordered to remain poor while in the business and for obedience were promised the most splendid pensions when superannuated. All became rich as princes by their exactions from the clients of the house, the agents, who were especially commanded to keep the peace, were ever stirring up quarrels and fighting ferociously, not only with opposition agents, but with one another. The accounts, which were being regulated by the most honest and simple rules, were complicated in a lawless system, which no man could understand, and falsified to incredible amounts, to the loss of the customers, without being to the gain of the firm. In brief, each establishment was like one of those Chinese shops where the most beautiful and noble maxims of justice and generosity are painted in gilt letters outside, while the most unblushing fraud and extortion are practiced inside. When poor customers complained of these things, they were told that the system was perfect, that the evils were all from the evil men who now conducted the business. But the good people did not further explain how the perfection of the system could ever be realized, since it must always be worked by imperfect men. Complainants, thus mildly and vaguely answered, were very fortunate. Others, in places where the firm was very powerful, were answered by imprisonment or false accusations, or by being pelted or even murdered by mobs. Many who thought the bread badly baked were themselves thrust into the fire. Yet so intense is the need of poor men for some bread of life, so willing are simple men to believe fair promises, that in spite of the monstrous injustice and falsehood and cruelty and licentiousness of the managers and sub-managers and agents of the firm, the business continued to flourish, and all the wealth of Europe flowed into its coffers and generations passed, ere some person bethought them to think seriously of the original deed of partnership and the fundamental principles of the firm. 
These documents, which had been carefully confined in certain old dead languages, which few of the customers could read, were translated into vulgar tongues, which all could read or understand when read, and everyone began studying them for himself. This thinking of essentials, which is so rare a thought among mankind, has already produced remarkable effects and promises to produce effects yet more remarkable in a short time. Behold a few of the questions which this study of the first document has raised. The father, whom no one has seen, is there indeed such a personage. The son, who certainly no one has seen for 1,800 years, did he really come to life again after being brutally murdered? The junior partner, whom no one has ever seen, the comforter, is he a comforter made of the wool of a sheep that never was fleeced? The business, as we see it, merely uses the names, and would be precisely the same business if these names covered no personages. Do the managers and sub-managers really carry it on for their own profit, using these high names to give dignity to their rascality and to make poor people believe that they have unbounded capital at their back? One is punished for defamation of character if he denies the existence of the partners, yet not the very chief of all the managers pretends to have seen any of the three. And the vaunted bread of life, wherein does it differ from the old corn of Circe's bread, from the baking of the wheat of Mother Hertha, chiefly in this, that it creates much more wind on the stomach, it is not more wholesome nor more nourishing, and certainly not more cheap, and it does us little good to be told that it would be if the accredited agents were honest and supplied it pure, when we are told at the same time that we must get it through these agents. It is indeed affirmed that, in an utterly unknown region beyond the Black Sea, the genuine wheat may be seen growing by anyone who discovers the place, but as no one who ever crossed the sea on a voyage of discovery ever returned, the assertion rests on the bare word of people who have never seen the cornland any more than they have seen the partners of the firm, and their word is bare indeed, for it has been stripped to shame in a thousand affairs wherein it could be brought to the test. They tell us also that we shall all in time cross the Black Sea, and if we have been good customers, shall dwell evermore in that delightful land with unlimited supplies of the bread gratis. This may be true, but how do they know? It may be true that in the sea we shall all get drowned forever. These and similar doubts, which in many minds have hardened into positive disbelief, are beginning to affect seriously the trade of the firm. But its interests are now so inextricably bound up with the interests of the thousands of millions of well-to-do and respectable people, and on its solvency, or apparent solvency, depends that of so large a number of esteemed merchants that we may expect the most desperate struggles to postpone its final bankruptcy. In the great Roman establishment, the manager has been supported for many years by charitable contributions from everyone whom he could persuade to give or lend, and now he wants to borrow much more. The superintendent of the shops in London 
is in these days begging for ten hundred thousand pounds to assist the poor firm in its difficulties. It seems a good sum of money, but, bless you, it is but a drop in the sea compared with what the business has already absorbed and is still absorbing. Scattered shops in the most distant countries have only been sustained for many years by alms from customers here. The barbarians won't eat the bread, but the bakers sent out must have their salaries. A million of pounds are being begged here, and people who would prosecute a medicant of a halfpence will give it, no doubt. Yet, O worthy manager of the London shops, one proved loaf of real bread would be infinitely more valuable and would infinitely more benefit your firm. The villainy of the agents was monstrous, generation after generation, the cost of which was promised without money and without price was ruinous for centuries. But not all the villainy and extortion multiplied a hundredfold could drive away the poor hungry customers while they had faith in the genuineness of the bread. It was the emptiness and the wind of the stomach, after much eating, which raised the fatal doubts as to the bona fides of the whole concern. The great English managers had better ponder this, for at present they grope in the dark delusion that more and better bakers salaried with alms and new shops opened with elementary funds will bring customers to buy their bran cakes as wheaten loaves. A very dark delusion indeed. If the pure promised bread cannot be supplied, no amount of money will keep the business going very long. Consider what millions on millions of pounds have been subscribed already. What royal revenues are pouring in still, all meant for investment in wholesome and nourishing food. But nearly all realized in hunger and emptiness, heartburn and flatulence. The old Roman shrewdly calculated that the house of Olympus would prove miserably insolvent if its affairs were wound up, if it tried honestly to pay back all the deposits of its customers. And for this more modern firm, one suspects that, in like case, it would prove so insolvent that it could not pay a farthing in the pound. For Olympus was a house that dealt largely in common worldly goods, and of these things really did give a considerable quantity to its clients for their money. But the new firm professes to sell things more infinitely more valuable, and of these it cannot prove the delivery of a single parcel during the eighteen hundred years it has been receiving purchase money unlimited. The humble compiler of this rapid and imperfect summary ought, perhaps, to give his own opinion of the firm and the partners, although he suffers under the disadvantage of caring very little for the business, and thinks that far too much time is wasted by both the friends and the enemies of the house in investigation of every line and figure in its books. He believes that Yah, the great Jewish dealer, was a succession of several distinct personages, and will probably continue to believe thus until he learns that there was but one pharaoh king of Egypt, but one bourbon king of France, and that the house of Rothschild has always been one and the same man. He believes that the son was by no means the child of the father, that he was a much better character than the father, 
that he was really and truly murdered, that his prospectus and business plans were very much more wise and honest and good than the prospectus as we have it now, and the system as it has actually been worked. He believes that the comforter has really had a share in this, as in every other business not wholly bad in the world, that he has never identified his interests with those of any firm, that specially he never committed himself to a partnership of unlimited liability with the Hebrew Yah, that he undoubtedly has extensive dealings with the Son, and placed implicit confidence in him while a living man, and that he will continue to deal profitably and bountifully with men long after the firm has become bankrupt and extinct. He believes that the corn of the true bread of life is sown and grown, reaped, ground, kneaded, baked, and eaten on this side of the Black Sea. He believes that no firm or company whatever, with limited or unlimited liability, has the monopoly for the purveyance of this bread, that no charters can confer such monopoly, that the bread is only to be got pure by each individual for himself, and that no two individuals of judgment really like it prepared in exactly the same fashion, but that, unfortunately, as his experience compels him to believe, the bulk of mankind will always in the future, no less than in the past, persist in endeavoring to procure it through great chartered companies. Finally, he believes that the worthy chief baker in London, with his millions of money, is extremely like the worthy Mrs. Partington, with her mop against the Atlantic. End of Section 3 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas